I frequently tell people that report to me, the last thing you want to do is hide from me. I think that philosophy plays over if you're an advisor. The last thing you want is to be hiding from your clients. And so we advocate the old piece, communicate, communicate. When you think you've communicated enough, then communicate some more. The number one is recruiting. Number two is retention, but specifically within retention, regretted attrition. And the third one is this, is the great resignation, which absolutely is impacting everybody. We have to get really creative with recruiting now. We have to think of new ideas and bring different concepts into recruiting that frankly are gonna make a lot of people uncomfortable. So one of the things that we're working on here as an initiative in 2022 is to standardize those service level agreements. With smaller financial institutions and the development of loan production offices, I would argue that if you set it up correctly from the very beginning, you can actually have it even if you're a small bank and you can have a very successful separate loan production office slash wealth hub that just focuses on high net worth and ultra high net worth. Hello and welcome to BISA Industry Trend Watch podcast. Good to have you with us today. Industry Trend Watch is a monthly series with industry leaders discussing trends in the financial institutions channel. In addition to industry trends, you will hear our guests provide their perspectives on the evolving strategic initiatives that are driving success and enabling our channel to better compete in the broader financial services industry. But first, we'd like to thank Ameriprise for making these podcasts possible. And as a show of appreciation, let's please listen to this brief message. This is Chris Melton, National Director of the Ameriprise Financial Institutions Group. Ameriprise Financial Institution Group is a proud sponsor of the BISA Monthly Industry Trending Podcast Series. With more than 25 years of experience and knowledge in serving the investment program needs of local banks and credit unions, Ameriprise Financial Institution Group brings a depth of understanding as well as investment capabilities to help clients and members feel more confident, connected, and in control of their financial life. We look forward to learning more about your financial institution and sharing how a successful investment program can be a competitive advantage. Call us at 800-679-1237 or visit us at Ameriprise.com AFIG. Securities offered by Ameriprise Financial Services, LLC, member FINRA and SIPC. Not federally insured, no financial institution guarantee, may lose value. Thank you. Hello, I'm Scott Stathis from Stathis Partners, and welcome to this episode of BISA Trend Watch, titled Managing 2022's Challenges. I will be your host, along with Bob Mattel, who will introduce himself in a moment. And our panelists today include an executive who manages one of the more successful programs in our channel, and an industry consultant known for his work with the entirety of a financial institution to assure alignment of critical strategic initiatives across the framework of an organization. Let me turn it over to Bob Mattel, who will introduce himself and have our panelists introduce themselves. Bob? Well, thanks a lot, Scott. And again, welcome to this edition of the BISA Industry Trend Watch. As Scott said, managing 2022 challenges. I'm also calling this our March Madness edition, since we are right smack in the middle of, I think, the Sweet 16 or the Elite Eight picket. I am Bob Mattel, and I am the co-host of this podcast. 
Today, as always, we have a great panel that we thank and appreciate for joining us. And we'd also like to thank the BISA for their partnerships with these podcasts. For all things BISA, go to BISANet.org. And now for the moment you've been really waiting for, let's meet our panel. Hey, Steve, why don't you start us off? Thanks, Bob. It's great to be here. Thank you, Scott and Bob, both for having us. Been in the industry about 28 years, and uh, I'm the Chief Financial Planning Officer at a Legacy Federal Credit Union. In that role, I sit as one of the executives on the credit union, manage a high-producing program here in Winston-Salem, and then we also manage two other programs, one in Tampa, Florida, which was a startup program, and one out in Kansas, which was a turnaround program. Well, thanks. And also, Steve is a board member of the BISA. I think our newest board member. So welcome to the board as well. Thank you, sir. Eric, your turn. Hi, I'm Eric Armstrong. Thank you again, Scott and Bob, for uh, for inviting me to, in, in honor of the March Madness reference. My three brackets are all completely dead. They're, they're gone. They're <laughs> absolutely useless at this point. I am a partner of Compass Consulting. We work nationally with financial institutions, and we essentially do work with anything within those financial institutions that touches revenue-producing roles. So that's from the, the banking side, commercial banking, real estate, private banking, on over to wealth management. Well, thanks so much. I've got Miami, and they're playing tonight at 10, so I'm shocked they've gotten this far. <laughs> we, we will see. I think the... The last games are coming up early April when this thing goes live, when everyone's listening to this. So with that, let's pass it to Scott with question number one. All right. Yeah, Eric, to your bracket uselessness point, I think a lot of people have experienced that at this point, right? There's been so many upsets. So, yeah. And we're going to be talking about not only what we've experienced so far from a you know, productivity standpoint in the first quarter of this year, but also what's ahead. Eric, certainly you can give us answers from the perspective of some of the clients that you work with. And Steve, you can give us answers directly from what you're experiencing in your program. So the first question is, is a relatively simple one. If we look at performance channel-wide in the first quarter of this year, it was pretty robust. So certainly 2021 was a killer year for us. The industry did very well. We came into this year with some pretty good tailwinds, and now we're starting to face some headwinds. So given that we had some robust first quarter numbers, but now there's some headwinds, Steve, if you will, give us a feel for how your program performed so far and what your outlook is from a productivity standpoint for the balance of the year. Sure. Happy to do that, Scott. We're off to a really good start in all three of our programs. Our flagship program here in Winston-Salem we're running just a little bit behind budget. We had a pretty aggressive budget for this year, but year over year, we're well ahead of the pace we were on for last year. So right now, things look pretty good. Program in Kansas is up substantially. That was a turnaround program. We're in about our third year. And as you and I've talked, Scott, we've made quite a few changes out there. And we're seeing that compounding of the recurring revenue really kicking in this year out there. So I expect to see growth probably in the 40 to 50% range for that program. Again, a little smaller than our program here. What are we looking for, you know, for the rest of the year? Those numbers that I just talked about for a legacy, we've done that being down two advisors. So basically 20% down. We have 10 advisors 
so we were down to eight advisors and even with the eight advisors we were off to a really good start like I said bettering last year we're happy to announce we just hired so we're actually up plus one over where we were we look for those advisors to really start to get started and hitting more of their stride in the April May time frame but as you and I've talked we're a financial planning shop and so a lot of the headwinds that are coming we always see financial planning opportunities so you know the products may change but the plans tend to stay the same but making adjustments for the inflation and the pieces that we're seeing out there yeah it's interesting as it relates to financial planning and Steve I'm assuming you experienced this with some of your advisors that when the pandemic first hit and things were in a bit of disarray When you look back on that period, it becomes very clear, especially when you do these types of interviews that we do all the time and look at data, it becomes very clear that the advisors that were planning centric and stayed in touch with their clients through that initial panic, if you want to call it that, and said, don't worry, we have a plan in place, stay the course, we're good, and made those contacts They ended up gathering a lot more assets because of that, and they did better than anybody else in the pandemic, right? Absolutely. And our results show that last year, 2021, was a record year for our program. And I attribute 90% of that to the financial planning part of it. Yeah. So let me ask you one more follow-on question then, Eric. I'd like to get your perspective from that broad view, looking down on some of the client programs you work with. But so Steve, the last follow-on question there is you mentioned you brought on a new advisor. I know that recruiting is not easy these days, especially if you're trying to recruit a very specific type of advisor, for example, an advisor that's very focused on planning and growing advisory business, for example. And I don't know if that was your situation, but I'm guessing it might be close. Any tips for those listening relative to how to recruit good advisors? Well, I will tell you, I picked up some tips from your session the other day. (laughs) But one of the things that we've kind of moved to is we're training our own. So even though we've hired experienced people, we put them through our training program. And that can be a wild card for us sometimes. Sometimes the harder part for the advisor is to forget the way they did it before and move to that financial planning. Generally, we've had pretty good success with that. And I'm very optimistic this year with the people that we've hired. Two of them were financial planning based. One was transactional, but more in the past. And so I think from a coaching perspective, I think he'll pick up and move on with us. So. And do you have internal training or do you rely on your third-party broker-dealer? No, we do it internally because we've got very specific processes and procedures. And it ranges from how each appointment is run to what do the presentations look like. And ours, what we teach is a very, very collaborative process. And we talk about strategies. And so the members or clients are picking which strategy or strategies do they believe will work best for them? Obviously, if I laid those out here, you would recognize them as specific products, but we do it as a, on a strategic front. And the, our clients seem to really embrace that. And we frequently will outline maybe three different strategies, let's say for a retirement strategy. And what we'll hear is, well, Steve, do I have to pick just one? Well, No, Scott, you can pick more than one. If you were thinking about more than one, which ones are you thinking about? 
So that strategy takes that product piece out of it. And then we come in behind it. Obviously, we disclose everything related to the products, but it's not product driven on the front end. It sounds like you use the term strategy. Obviously, it's strategy driven, but I'm sure it's needs based too, right? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, cool. So Eric, as you listened to some of that and thought about some of the institutions that you have either worked with or are working with, what are your thoughts relative to where we are so far this year and and where we're going? Yeah, thank you. First of all, congratulations, Steve, on a record year last year. I couldn't agree with you more about being planning-centric and how key that is to maintaining success in, in almost any environment, that economic environment that where we find ourselves in. That's just where the puck is going and organizations that are already there are ahead of the curve. From a holistic point of view, I find it fascinating from our perspective, seeing the programs that are struggling and what they have in common and seeing the programs that are not struggling and in fact are thriving and what they all have in common. The programs that tend to thrive in these environments and other environments are the ones that, first of all, the the advice platform is planning-centric, number one, like Steve said. Number two, the platform is well-supported by the C-suite of the organization and the board of directors. Number three, it's supported at a level that involves other channels of the financial institution, up to and including licensed bankers and private bankers. Organizations that have those elements, this is a blip on the radar. It really isn't impacting them at all. And organizations that don't have those things, they're, they're getting kicked in the teeth a little bit. Totally agree. It's all about alignment, right? And support from the top down. Bob, let me pass it to you because you have a related question, I believe. Uh, absolutely. And we were just talking about financial planning being the key to thriving in any market. And we are certainly in one of those any markets right now, given all of the uh, economic uncertainty surrounding things like interest rates, gas prices, overall inflation, the war in Ukraine, even the March Madness brackets make a a little bit of a joke there, but what guidance are you providing to your advisors relative to how they should be communicating with their clients? Steve, why don't you start us off on that one? Sure. Thanks, Bob. Interesting question. And I frequently tell people that report to me, the last thing you want to do is hide from me. And I think that philosophy plays over if you're an advisor. The last thing you want is to be hiding from your clients. And so we advocate the old piece, communicate, communicate. When you think you've communicated enough, then communicate some more. So we're very active in the outreach, very active in the reviews. And obviously in times like this, we think speeding up the pace of your reviews brings it into focus a lot better. The one area that I'd tell you that we were working on, we've got 11 advisors now. And over the years, uh, as we develop teams, one of the things we've seen is our service level agreements were developed by teams, not by us on the program side. So one of the things that we're working on here as an initiative in 2022 is to standardize those service level agreements across the teams. And we believe that we need to have those service level agreements internally and external. You know, so internal with the various departments in the credit union, but also external with our partners. So back to what we've been talking about, financial planning, I think financial planning provides us just so many opportunities to talk with our members and our clients, and it enables us to do so in, you know, not in that framework that 
what are you trying to sell me now? No, we're just checking in, letting you know where we stand on the plan. So to us, it's more and more communication. I have to agree. And that's that getting to that trusted advisor mode and not hiding from your clients. I have two financial advisors. One's a bank-based, one's a wirehouse-based. And they both have been reaching out to me saying, stay the course. This is, it's, this is why you have me. They also know of each other. So I kind of pit them against each other, which is working. I, I, I just recently have had a, a bank FA because I just felt it would be good for me in this industry to have a little bit of both so I can compare and contrast. But I guess that's what it's all about. Stay the course, right, Steve? Yes, yes, sir. I agree. Eric, comments? Yeah, I don't have advisors. The guidance that I provide is to, is to program managers and C-suite folks. And one of the things that we've been pressing a little bit on, if this, if this, just to add to the conversation, is specific to marketing. And a lot of financial institutions have, obviously, they all have marketing budgets. But surprisingly, not many of them have a marketing budget that's specific to the financial advice platform. Where we're really pushing that, number one. And number two, we're pushing that they need times like this, there needs to be a little bit more support financially relating to the marketing of the financial advice platform out in the community with events and different things and chambers that are obviously going to give back to those that are supporting them. So I know it's not directly relating to advisors, but it certainly helps them do what they're doing if their financial institution is providing a little bit more support on the marketing side. No, that makes perfect sense because every organization, everybody starts out with a bank account, right? And then somehow they go off and they start finding other institutions that are not related to their bank. Everybody gets their first paycheck. Scott says this all the time. It's related to a bank. And then we have all these other services that aren't necessarily marketed to those bank customers and they drift off like I just, like I did. I just went back to a bank after I've been working 40 years. I just went back to the bank and said, hey, I have some additional assets. Let's invest them. They didn't ask me. I had to ask them. Because they don't do marketing. And this is one of the top four banks in the country. They will go nameless. But you're absolutely right. What types of marketing programs can we, you know, can banks do to just reach out? I mean, is it more awareness or what? Oh, there's i I'll give you one example. There's a huge equestrian event that's taking place, I think, this weekend. I think it starts this weekend. It runs for three weeks. It's called Pin Oak. And I believe it's, I think it's in Houston. But this, you know, it's equestrian. So let's think about who's going to be going to that and who's going to be in the audience. People that they can afford a horse and an expensive one <laughs> that they're in a category that we would want to be interested in. But getting creative and looking for things like that. So Pin Oak is something that we have been telling our banks and credit unions, you guys got to get your name on this. Like they should see you be there. You need to have people there, get a booth, three week event. So just creative things like that. And you can take Pin Oak in Texas. You could put that in every county across the United States that has a similar type of uh, event that a bank or a credit union can participate in. So I hope that helps. That's just one example of what I'm talking about. That makes a lot of sense. And I think the more banks that do those types of events and even seminars and everything, just it's more about awareness and just getting out and reaching out to those clients. All right, I'm going to go uh, half court pass the ball to Scott. Right, we get March Mendes in there a little bit, you know. <laughs> Jump All right, shot. cool. So, so <laughs> I got the ball. A couple quick follow-on questions, then I'll ask my main question. The first is Steve. You mentioned service level agreements, which I think are becoming incredibly important in an industry that is commoditized. Right? It's one of the ways which you can differentiate yourself with external service level agreements. So, if advisors provide service level agreements to their clients, 
And I would suggest that those service level agreements are somewhat customized to the segment that their clients are in, right? So you have mm-hmm. a different service level agreement for your top clients than you do for your bottom clients, so to speak. Correct. That keeps stuff on track. It manages expectations and it lets the client know what you're going to do for them. But it also, it implies things like you want to have at least one meeting a year with the whole family, including the next generation, right? It implies that you want to do a policy review, which you should be doing, right? Those are the things you can bake into a service agreement. That's a win-win because it'll inspire the client's to do things like agree to a policy review or a family meeting, and it will put the monkey on the back of the advisor to do that too, right? So you mentioned service level agreements. That's a particular passion of mine. I'm just curious, and not that you have to spill all your beans, but what type of things are you looking to baking into your service level agreements? You've mentioned several of them that we want to have in there also. The other piece that I think is important is in order to show that this is a two-way street. So we're saying to the member, to the client, here are the things that we expect. But one of the things that I put in mind, you know, over the years is when I telephone you, I expect you to take my call. So we're setting a member expectation for, I'm not going to be calling you to try and sell you the newest widget. It's important when I make that phone call. So our expectation is that you'll take that call. So we try and put some things like that in there because, again, it is relationship-based. And if it's a relationship, we both have obligations and responsibilities. And so we talk with our clients. Some, you know, we lay out a review schedule and we tell the member, here's the schedule that we think would be appropriate. Some members will say, no, I don't need quite that much. Or some members may say, I need a little bit more of a touch than that. And so we're able to flex just a little bit. I mean, obviously, if it's a very, very low dollar account with not a lot of influence, that's they're not going to get 16 touches a year. But what we're trying to do is really standardize it because the financial planning aspect we've been doing for quite a few years, but the communication, our support side of things hasn't been where it needs to be. And so another one of our initiatives for this year is we hired an operations manager. We're centralizing a lot of that, which will help us to better standardize those pieces to your point across the various segments. Yeah, yeah, good. I I think that's a worthy initiative to obsess over those service level Mm -hmm. agreements because they're very leverageable. So the, the other thing, and Eric, this was this is in response to something that you said. The other thing that's interesting, because you were mentioning the equestrian event and people that own horses. So one of the things that are rising to the top relative to best practices when we look at advisors are specialty advisors or niche advisors, right? Advisors that specializes in niches. I, I've given the example a couple of times of there was a podcast I was listening to. There's a female advisor who had, you know, went through a divorce and is a single mom and blah, blah, blah. She decided as an advisor, she's going to specialize in working with women who have been divorced that are now the sole breadwinners that are also trying to raise kids. I mean, that's her niche and she's killing it. She has just a great business, right? What's the point? The point is there are tons of niches. You can, as an advisor, literally, because geography doesn't matter anymore, specialize in people that own horses and compete in horse competitions. And those are very wealthy people. They're all over the country, which doesn't matter anymore because like I said, geography doesn't. You can build a practice on stuff like that 
and talk about a way to differentiate yourself in a commoditized market, right? So that kind of stuff from a strategic standpoint is also worthy of spending a lot of time trying to figure out. And Eric, I, so it's not a question, it was just a, a reaction, but I don't know if you have a, a thought based on that reaction. No, I, I think it's really interesting, Scott. And yeah, I, I think the most interesting part about it is that I hardly know any. I mean, between this group of people here, we probably know a couple of thousand at some level financial advisors that we run across. I can't tell you, uh, maybe 10 that I think are specialists. So I think it's an interesting, I, I think it's a good idea. I just don't think a lot of people do it. No. Well, it's done on the IBD side, right? So Michael Kitsis has a great series of podcasts and he interviews advisors that are doing really well. And a lot of them are specialty advisors. It's just a a brilliant way to differentiate yourself. So anyway, neither of those was a planned question. So let me get to a planned question. So we talked about the economic uncertainty, et cetera, as being potentially a headwind going into this year, but let's broaden it. So if we look at the next few years and we think about our channel, right? The wealth management channel inside banks and credit unions, what do you guys think are the biggest challenges that we face as a channel going forward, especially as it relates to our competition, which really is coming from other channels, not necessarily from other banks or credit unions, right? So Eric, I know you're a strategic thinker because you and I have had these discussions. So if you will kick us off with that, what do you think some of the biggest challenges are over the next few years as we try and evolve our wealth programs? I think there are three and they're kind of dumb moments, I suppose that people would say, but the number one is recruiting. Number two is retention, but specifically within retention, regretted attrition. And the third one is this, is the great resignation, which absolutely is impacting everybody. The great resignation is, of course, across all channels, not just financial advice. And those are huge challenges. When you think about where the industry is at right now and where it's going and the number of people that are likely going to be leaving this space versus the number of people that are coming into the space. You think about the number of people that actually change within the BD space itself, financial advisors, What's where's the largest percentage of them and where do they go? They go to the RIA channel and independent channel. What I think is very interesting, and it's something that we try very hard to track ourselves, but no one really knows what percentage of people, not any numbers that I've seen that, that holds water anyway, what percentage of people that move go to a financial institution channel. My contention is that it's a bigger number than people think. So it's a fast growing channel. It isn't going to match the speed of which the RIA and independent broker dealer channels are moving, but it's a very fast moving channel, much faster than I think people realize. So we have to get really creative with recruiting now. We have to think of new ideas and bring different concepts into recruiting that frankly are going to make a lot of people uncomfortable. And that's one of the things that we've been talking about a lot. We have to come up with different ideas on how to retain and how to reduce the regretted attrition within our financial advisors. I don't want, we don't want any of our clients to lose a, a top producer. How do we maintain that? You know, those, those people in particular, we have to get creative with that. And then the last one is that affects everything that we're doing within banks and credit unions is this great resignation. We don't hear about it too much in our work because we don't really have that issue within financial advice. But if you leave our space and you go into any other space within a bank or credit union, these managers and these CEOs and presidents are dealing with major problems of support people and business development people that are unrelated to their financial advice platform 
quitting in droves. Helping them through that will help them, in fact, be better supporters of the financial advice channel. So those are the three things that I think are huge challenges that are not going to be going away anytime soon. Yeah, I think you're kind of right on target with each one of those. You know, the regretted attrition is interesting. And I'll just make one comment there. Then, Steve, I'd like to pass it to you for thoughts. One of the questions I got recently is that, you know, how do you create golden handcuffs? And I thought about the answer in a little bit of a different way because I was thinking very specifically about the benefits of working within a bank or credit union if that financial institution is working well across departmental lines. And what I mean by that is a perfect way to retain a good advisor is to make sure that good advisor has really solid relationships with people in your organization like the business banker, like the private banker, like the mortgage lender, like et cetera, et cetera, right? Those centers of influence in your organization. Once those relationships are solid and there's really good referral flow back and forth, that advisor is not going anywhere, right? So I don't think of those golden handcuffs necessarily in terms of a financial package as much as I do from a relationship standpoint that cements that person to your organization. You have to be a, a high, highly functioning organization to have that, but that's what we all strive for. So just one thought about that elimination of regretted attrition. It's not an easy one. It's a heavy lift, but you should strive for that. So Steve, let me pass it to you for some thoughts on the big picture. Well, you kind of threw the ball right to me in an area that I was going to add. I thought Eric did a great job in his answer. What I would like to add is Gary Chapman, a number of years back, wrote a book called uh, Five Love Languages, and then they adapted it and called it Five Languages of Appreciation. And we put our staff through that because it tunes you in to, um, I'll give you a real quick example. My top producer, I thought, just leave me alone. I'm out here. I'm working. I'm doing good things. And when we put him through the languages of appreciation, found out he was a quality time individual. So we have routinely scheduled lunches. Sometimes it's about personal items. Sometimes it's about business. Sometimes it's about a combination. But through that relationship, found that he wanted to reduce his schedule, not reduce his income, do the same amount of income, not work longer hours. But we now have him on a program where he works four days a week normal hours, whatever his normal hours were, and his production was up substantially last year. And so I'm a big believer in what you're talking about. How do we flex schedules? What's the language of appreciation? How do we touch those people where they really appreciate that touch? So I think you're spot on, Scott. Yeah, no, that's good stuff. And flex schedules are important from a number of perspectives, especially attracting more women into our space, right? That's very important to them. And certainly it's been proven in this pandemic that people can be extremely productive working from home when need be. Or New Zealand. Or New Zealand, like we've talked about, right? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, thanks for all those thoughts and nuggets of input, Bob. Let me pass it back to you. Yeah. Let me just tag on to that in terms of the millennials out there. I have a 24-year-old. They are looking for different things from the workforce. And I think we're onto something with flexible scheduling and, and hybrid positions and all, all of the things that we've learned through the pandemic, including technology that really help people have that work-life balance and really understand that you know, if we change the way we do business 
and change the culture, we'll be able to really attract more folks to this industry. So, and kind of on the same tangent, you know, we were also talking about specialized FAs. What about a, an FA specialized in ensuring protection is included in every plan? Wouldn't that, wouldn't that be something? Which is a layup to my question, which is on insurance. To all our listeners, you know, this is, this is my thing. So according to LIMRA, you know, U.S. life insurance sales experienced more growth last year than any other year since 1983. But it doesn't seem that our channel has benefited from this much. And, and there's a dozen reasons. The insurance protection question is not conducive to bank culture. It's hard to sell. There's not enough money in it. Discovery is difficult. It's intimidating. Policy reviews are difficult. They're actually the easiest thing to do. So, Steve, talk to us about if the whole industry, everybody in the U.S. is buying more life insurance, what's going on in banks and credit unions? I have an opinion, but in the sense of full disclosure, I would tell you my group is not doing a good job of it on the insurance side. I am a huge believer in the life insurance, and I think it's gotten easier. But I think a lot of the folks that have become advisors came off the money management side, out of the brokerage houses, and I don't think really resonated with them. I think it should be so much easier today, and I think part of the growth comes about that it is easier for the individual. But what I'm concerned about on the individual side is that the gap, they, they still haven't filled the gap. You know, they bought insurance, but they didn't necessarily buy enough insurance relative to their situation. You know, so I think we as an industry, as a profession, need to embrace the fintech side of things more. And I think that from a data, I think our insurance partners know far more about us today than they ever knew. You couple that with the artificial intelligence piece of it. And I think the underwriting process should be so much easier, so much less paper driven, and so much more precise. So from a, an advisor side, I think they, yes, they've embraced the WebEx side of things, but I don't think they've embraced how easy it is to write some of the policies. But on our side, when you look at the compensation, and I think some advisors look at this, that they get $2 million or $3 million term policy, is it worth all that they have to go through to get it, number one? But I think one way for us to get around it is we do fee-based planning and we were also doing subscription-based planning. And I think that coupled up with some of the fintechs where here's what you need, here's where you can get it. And so you take that commission piece totally out of it. Now you're strictly on the planning piece, but for a fee basis. I really believe that that's where our industry is going. I'd have to agree. I think advances in underwriting technology, and it's interesting, that $2 million policy that the FA doesn't want to deal with could very easily go someplace else along with all the other assets. And that exactly. person will then be the trusted advisor, not the FA that's in the bank. And, you know, we always preach about the six core needs. I list them differently than others. Legacy, protection, income later, income now, credit and savings. With the first two is, I think, being most important, legacy and protection. But that's just where I come from. Well, I would add to that, Bob, if you think of what we do as a pyramid, you know, so there's a base and in, in the banks or credit unions, what's on the base? Savings, lending, and then financial planning. And I believe that that pyramid should be turned upside down. My CEO and I both think that we should be three to six times the size of the credit union. I'm pretty pleased that we're 
one-to-one with the credit union on that side, but I've got a long ways to go and a short runway. One-to-one, I think, is the best practice by far. So. <laughs> Well, that's a lot of good chatter about protection, which, you know, all our listeners know I like to include on almost every podcast. I don't get to every podcast, but thankfully we got to this. And thanks, Steve, for that. Let me pass it over to Scott. All right. So I do have another question. And let me just make a follow up comment on, Steve, something that you said relative to insurance and protection, because you said, is the revenue on a term policy even worth it, right? From the perspective of an advisor, it's the way they think about it. And there are two interesting things you said after that. But so I answer that question with a emphatic yes. And I'll tell you why, because you shouldn't be looking at just the revenue generated from the term policy. That's irrelevant. What you should be looking at is what talking to your clients about protection does for the overall relationship. And the fact that I guarantee you, if you do that, you will gather more assets. That's the revenue that you should be looking at. Right. So absolutely. Yeah. And to your point about fees, there's no doubt in my mind that we are evolving to a fee-for-service model, right? Because the AUM, fees based on AUM is broken for a number of reasons anyway. So that's eventually where the puck is going. And that'll eliminate that barrier because the smart advisors are going to realize if they work with the big picture, including protection and are more holistic, they're going to get more fee-based clients, right? More fee-for-service clients. So that's all important stuff to keep in mind, especially if you're a student of the game, meaning you keep your eye on where the puck is going. And that's really clear. All right. So the no, last- I don't know about this, this puck stuff. This is supposed to be March Madness. I don't know how we got into hockey season, but- <laughs> it's, it's where the ball is going. <laughs> all right. So my last question before we get to a fun question in the lightning round is it's kind of a big picture question. We- in these discussions, always like to learn about strategic initiatives that are moving the ball forward, shall we say, right? So successful strategic initiative. So I'm just wondering, both of you, you know, Steve and Eric, if you have launched any strategic initiatives that have really had an impressive impact. And Eric, if you want to answer that from the perspective of some of the work that you've done, and then Steve, from the perspective of your program, I think that would be valuable to our listeners. So Eric, you want to go first? Sure. Thanks, Scott. The idea is, the idea where I'm going to kind of start from came about maybe 20 to 25 years ago. We started doing a lot of work with smaller financial institutions in the development of loan production offices. Everybody knows what a loan production office is. It's it's a non-retail bank branch. And about five years ago, we started developing and implementing specific strategies within smaller institutions because the wealth hubs, so to speak, the, the loan production offices tended to be mostly successful with larger financial institutions. And I would argue that if you set it up correctly from the very beginning, you can actually have it even if you're a small bank, you can be a one and a half or two or two and a half billion dollar bank or credit union, and you can have a very successful separate loan production office slash wealth hub that is a non-retail center that just focuses on the high net worth and ultra high net worth capabilities of the financial advice platform and the financial institution combined. And we've had some really good success. I, in full disclosure, we've seen some not work out, but the majority of these programs, if they're set up correctly, are now really turning into be very successful parts of the financial advice platform that are semi-detached from the financial institution, which of course, you know, leads to different levels of comp plans, 
different retention tools for people like that. But overall, that's an initiative that we've been really excited about. And I actually think that one, this piece that I'm talking about is something that's going to continue to grow within the financial institution space. So we're really excited about it. So you're implying that in those loan production offices, you are housing a wealth advisor to work with those loan officers, right? Yeah, we're employing maybe one or two trust people, maybe two or three licensed financial advisors, maybe a salaried wealth manager that has a salary of $150,000 to $250,000 a year, someone that is an insurance specialist. So it's, yeah, it is, if you think about the circle, the financial circle that needs, that any client needs to have some access to, they're housed at some level within this loan production office slash wealth hub that is not a retail location. Yeah, well, I, I mean, a common, a common word for it, Scott, and I know everybody talks about this, this is, you know, is a second floor offering. That's essentially what it is. Yeah. Yeah. But what's beautiful about that is that you're linking the second floor offering with loan production officers. And just think about the wealth of data loan production officers have on clients of the institution including all their assets, right? They know where they all are. They have to. So that's, that's a, I love that. So thank you for that contribution. Steve? I just want to tag on to what Eric said. I think Eric is spot on with the LPOs. Another way that we look at it here at A Legacy is, and I, I shared with you what my uh, CEO wants, you know, three to six times the assets of the credit union. And so that's, what you, frequently, that's what you get for giving them one-to-one, Steve. He just wants more. I right? know, it, it is, yeah. <laughs> but it takes us down this strategic road. Are we a financial institution that offers wealth products or are we a financial planning firm that offers banking products? Love it, love it. You know, so we're trying to live it, but we're not near ready to flip that switch yet. That's very cool. And you know what? So just inverting that pyramid again, right, is what you're talking about. Exactly. And that, uh, to me, I mean, because if you think of the six core needs that Bob said, he said them in the opposite order that I say them, because I say them in the order that people tend to need them from when they're young to older. But either way, if you think about the six core needs, the retail institution, put commercial in there as well, can handle about 2.3 of those needs and you need wealth for the rest, right? So to your point, Steve, what are you as a financial institution or what do you want to grow up to be as you are a player in this race to gather assets? That's the game that we're all in. I don't care where in this industry you are, right? So what is the best way to gather assets? To service all those needs and you need wealth and trust perhaps to do that. Anyway, so I, I, I love that. All right. This has been a great discussion. So let's have a fun ending to it with our lightning round questions. Bob, do you have your bell or did you forget that? I don't have the bell. I am recording from Florida. I usually have the bell. That's in New York. But it's not a lightning round. It's a buzzer beater this month. (laughs) (laughs) And Eric, we're going to go with you first. Who is the most famous person you've ever met? I would say Robert Wagner and Stephanie Powers. Ah. 25 25 years ago, I brokered a deal in, in San Paulo, Brazil. Another story but the company was partly owned by Robert Wagner and Stephanie Powers, and they were massively involved in this transaction. And I got to know them both really well. And I, I don't want to say we became friends, but we became friendly. And I worked with him for probably four months on this project. 
And the best part of it was I, for literally four months, I never had to worry about dinner reservations. It was off the table. All he's, <laughs> you, you're Robert Wagner. You go anywhere you want, anytime you want, and you get a table. Nice. Excellent. And buzzer, Steve. <laughs> The most famous person that I've met, I wish my son were here handling this question, but most famous one that I've met has been Colin Powell. Met him a couple years ago in Washington, D.C., and as we all know, he's deceased. And he was to be here in Winston a number of months back with Madeleine Albright to do a what's called face-to-face for Wake Forest. Obviously, he got ill and passed away, and then you know, Madeline just passed away yesterday, but my son is a captain for a major airline and he's constantly telling me stories about who was on his plane and, you know, that type of thing. So he would be better to play this round, but Colin Powell will work for me today. Yeah, that's great. Cool. I, I always like to ask the co-host a question. So Scott. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, then I'm going to ask you too. So I'll let you guys guess who the most famous person is that I ever met and I'll give you a hint. So Although I haven't lived in New Jersey for a very long time, it is where I grew up, and I spent my summer weekends, <laughs> summer weekends hanging out at the Jersey Shore. So who do you think it is? It's it's Bruce. Come on, it's Bruce. I was at, I was at a small club listening to a band at the Jersey Shore, and at about one o'clock in the morning. I look to my left, and there's Springsteen all alone, just leaning against the pole with a beer in his hand listening to the band. So I couldn't help myself. I had to walk up to him. And I, so I asked him, I said, Bruce, are you thinking of getting up on stage and playing any music? Cause he was famous for doing that. Right. And he said, he looked at me and he nods. He said, yeah, I'm thinking about it. So I'm like, cool. Okay. Well, I'm hanging. <laughs> so at two o'clock in the morning, the club closed, lights came on, everybody, you know, the doors opened, people started walking out, but I noticed he wasn't going anywhere. The band who had left the stage was still kind of hanging out off to the sides. And there was just a handful of people that were not going anywhere. So I thought, well, I'm not going anywhere. About 15 minutes later, the doors closed again. The lights went off. The band came back on stage and Bruce joined them and played till four in the morning. So that was really cool. 50 people in the place, roughly, right? So private show. So that was pretty cool. That's that's my story. Bob, what's yours? Uh, Well, I can do a whole description just like that. So I was in Boston. And none of this will have it. You'll never be able to guess who this is because it's not related to anything. But I was in Boston and I was at a, an event with an insurance company and the keynote speaker was George H.W. Bush. And I was one of the, the guests and I was at a table right next to him. And, and we obviously got a meet and greet and swear to God, he said, you know, we, we don't get a lot of time with an ex-president. So he said, so what is it that you do? And I said, I'm in the life insurance business. He says, oh, that's very important. So... We will leave on that note <laughs> that a former president, was it, uh, was he 41? I think it was. I don't remember. They had different numbers. 41? 41. 41. He was 41. Right. Yeah. It was 41. I know there was 41 and 43 or W or whatever they played with each other. But uh, former president of the United States said life insurance is important. So I've been waiting to use that for years. So there we go. All right. Take that to the bank. All right. Well, thanks to both of you for being part of our podcast series. And thanks for all of your valuable input that you gave us. It was great and very enjoyable having you both with us. Much appreciated. Bob, let me let you, as always, make our official closing comments before we all say goodbye. Absolutely. Love to do that. Thanks again to our participants today, Steve and Eric. 
Thanks again also to the BISA for their partnership with this podcast series and Jeff Hardy, the executive director of the BISA. Thank you to Ameriprise for their sponsorship and to Janet Capaletti for our bank channel research. Hey, listeners, you know how to never miss one of these podcast series? Subscribe to this and our other series, which are Industry Leadership and Success and Untangling FinTech, all available wherever you get your podcasts. Now, you do get podcasts, right? So I'm assuming that you know where to get these, Apple and all the others. So with that, I think it's a wrap. All right. Thanks again, you guys. And bye, everybody, to our listeners. Thanks for being with us. Thank you, Scott. Thank you, Bob. Thank you for joining us for this episode of BISA Industry Trend Watch. And thanks to Ameriprise for their much appreciated support. Be sure to subscribe to our two other podcast series, Industry Leadership and Success, focused on industry-leading performance and success stories, and Untangling FinTech, aimed at helping you keep up with the evolution of technology offerings in our industry. Goodbye until next month.